And judgment was, is one of those things, every time you say judgment, you get this picture in your head of somebody who's really angry at you. If we don't like somebody, we'll say that they're judgmental. And we worship a judgmental God. So hear me out on this. Because God's judgment isn't always a bad thing. It's not always bad. There are a bunch of different kinds of judgment. As a dad, I am judgmental on my kids. Like we actually have a place where we execute judgment uh, over specifically my son. We've got a picture of this right now. Uh, He's three and a half. He is fully crazy and fully boy, uh, loves to run around naked. So the fact that he's wearing underwear for some of those pictures, that's an improvement in our house. Uh, But he does something wrong. He goes on timeout. And then right after the timeout, he goes to the stairs. I'll look at him and I'll say, hey, hit the stairs. So he's like, all right, fine. Uh, and so he'll sit down, and we go through a number of times uh, of judgment, and God has all of these for us. I have all these for my, for my son. Uh, we don't always end with, with pain and a butt whooping. We always end with a hug. So for every one of these judgments, it's because God is a loving father, and as a dad myself, I want to enact that. God is judgmental and loving like a good father, and we see that first in the, in the way that God protects us. Or sorry, the way that God corrects us. Okay, it's any parent talking to their kid, you can't do it that way. Okay, Costco is like Disneyland for crazy disobedient kids, especially on a Saturday. Like you're trying to drive your mile-wide cart through those aisles, and some kid is going flat-out crazy in front of you, and you're not moving. That's just life. So for him, Micah, he's got two places that he can sit. He can either sit in the front, like facing you, or he can sit in the basket. And since those big tubs are on sale, we got one of those big tubs today, or yesterday, and there was no basket sitting. So we told him, all right, here's your chance. If you can hold onto the cart and you can stay near the cart, you can walk. And that was an amazing 10 seconds of us giving him a chance to actually do that. <laughs> it was amazing. So immediately, right away, I corrected, disciplined my kid, picked him up, and held him for the rest of the trip. And it was horrible horrible because he, uh, he's big and uh, my arms aren't that big yet. So uh, he will grow faster than my arms will, but it was, protect, it was correction, corrective discipline. Like you're not going to run an iron crazy. You are not going to be that kid at Costco trying to eat the bananas from inside the bag. That's not happening. So I held him for the rest of the time because he needed to be corrected. He needed to be taught. That's how God does it with us. He will discipline us when we're doing the wrong thing. He will say, I love you too much to let you break the rules, which is my phrase, my phrase for my son, I'm going to correct you. There's also protective discipline. This is the stove, okay? You touch the stove, or in my son's case, you touch the barbecue, there is no more discipline required because the, all the heat from inside the barbecue just disciplined the heck out of your hand. Right? For us, we do this when God steps in and says, you know what, if you do that again, you're going to get hurt. I'm going to protect you from hurting yourself by disciplining you in this situation. There's healing discipline. This is how you stop getting hurt. It's how God talks to us. Say, you know what? I'm going to bring this issue in your life to light so that you can make a change, so that you can do things a little bit differently because you need to find healing. The way that you're going is going to lead to damage, is going to lead to pain. So I'm going to bring discipline. I'm going to bring judgment into your life so that things about you change. God's a loving father. He's not some kid with a magnifying glass ready to burn us when we screw up. He's saying, I'm going to sometimes bring a little bit of pain into your life so that you can change in the midst of your pain and walk out completely different because God's discipline, God's judgment always leads to life. He's saying, I want you to learn from your judgment. I want you, I want this to be a temporary thing. It's like when we're kids, we get grounded for a time. Nobody gets grounded until they're 60. 
Like you get grounded for a week so that at the end of that week, trust me, I know from experience, that you're going to do things differently. You're going to work harder so that your parents don't find out about your grades because the idea of actually studying never enters a 12-year-old's head. At least it didn't with me. <clears throat> but it's something that's going to lead us to life. And God has so many things that he wants to teach us as we open our hearts, as we open our lives to him. Some of it he's going to bring into our lives in the form of judgment because the way that we are going, we haven't learned from all of the good examples yet. We need our lives to sometimes temporarily be a bad example for us to wake up, for us to see the things that God has for us. And this is one of those opportunities. He's saying in the book of Joel, this, this discipline, this thing that's temporary, it's going to lead to life. So it's a book of judgment, and it's a book of ju judgment strictly around the whole area of fear. What we're going to look at today, fear is this big thing that takes on a ton of different forms. We could talk about financial fear right now and think like that's the only fear that matters. Money is a big fear in people's lives that we need to hold on to, but we can't be generous. We can't follow God's example of giving 10% to the church for the furthering of God's mission. We need to hold on to everything that we have because otherwise I'm afraid of what could happen to my money. And we can say that that's the only fear and we can close up shop and we can go home. But fear really is like Amazon.com, all right? Amazon has everything. There are, there are a million different things in our lives that we can be, be fearful about. Like there's lists online of all these different phobias and weird words that you can't pronounce. And you're like, really, why would somebody be afraid of peanut butter? But in somebody's life, it's a real thing that you can be afraid of. On Amazon, you can buy, this is, we, we talked about this earlier and had somebody look it up. What's the weirdest thing you could buy on Amazon? But you could buy five pounds of human fat on Amazon. Like, just think, somebody actually wants to buy that fat that we're all trying to lose, that we're trying to get out of our lives. There's somebody who will pay for it, and if they're prime, and if they order 35 bucks or more, they could have that fat same day. Like, it'd just be a straight-up trade from one person to the other, and you pay for it. Fear is like that. Anything that you can imagine, there's an area for us to be afraid of in life. And the devil wants to make us, make us slaves to fear, but God's freedom is always waiting for us. He's saying, I want to make you a slave to fear. The devil is going to invent things to hold us in captivity. And God says, you know what? That, that doesn't even matter with me. I will lead you through anything. I've got freedom for you. And so as we start the book of Joel in this passage today, the whole area of fear that they're using, the, the catalyst for this fear, isn't five pounds of fat, isn't peanut butter. Uh, they live in an agricultural society, and so the image that, they, that this fear takes on is that of locusts. Locusts are bugs. We're going to watch a video about them in a little bit with a guy with a fancy British accent who will make all of us feel smarter. But their power was to completely destroy their civilization. Let's check out what it would look like back then. There is no other species on the planet that responds as quickly and as dramatically to the good times as the desert locust. Eggs that have remained in the ground for 20 years begin to hatch. An adult locust eats its entire body weight every day and a whole swarm can consume literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path.
but locusts in this thing, they, they come through, they, they tear up the whole society. And, and for them, the whole idea of locusts, Joel bringing this up, chapter 1, it's a throwback to Israel's early history with God. So as Pastor John used to say, uh, going back to the, when Israel was, was slaves in Egypt and God brought 10 plagues uh, to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to say, I, I care about these people, you need to let them go or else it's going to be bad for you. One of the plagues that God brought was locusts. So this time Joel says there's a plague of locusts that's coming. Everybody remembers back to the book of Exodus from the very beginning, from their first date where God says, I love these people and I will work for their freedom. Only that what happens here and what Joel talks about and what we're going to look at is in this day of the Lord, it's the Israelites who are the ones who are, who are going to receive the plague. They're not the ones who are going to be liberated, not the ones who are going to be set free, but they're the ones who have acted wrongly, who have the alarm clock in their face saying, hey, let's get up, let's do things differently. And the first fear that gets talked about here is the fear of responsibility. This is verse 2, chapter 1. It says, Hear you leaders of the people, listen all you who live in the land. In all your history, has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. After them came the hopping locusts and then the stripping locusts too. So in all of this, what's happening for the leaders, the people who should be on the front lines dealing with this problem, is they're saying, you know what, we're going to tell our kids about it. We're going to tell our grandkids about it. We're going to take no responsibility, no action whatsoever. There's a big thing on the horizon that's coming to bring damage and we're going to do nothing. And that's the fear that we have. The first fear that we have in this is the fear of responsibility. The fear that if I'm actually going to take responsibility over what's going on in my life, what's going on in relationships around me, that it could end very, very badly. It's the fear of what if we talk to that person? What if we seek help for the addiction that we can't keep under control? What are people going to think about me? What if all of a sudden my truth is out there and everybody knows me for who I am? What if I actually say something to that person? What if I actually get involved in a ministry here and then all of a sudden all the responsibility is on me? Like that serve card, it says serve card on it, but it's really just responsibility card. What areas of our church do you want to take individually, do you want to take responsibility for? Where has God already wired you to take responsibility for something that's going on in our lives, in our life as a church, in our lives in general? From the very beginning, God created us to have responsibility over things. God created the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve. He put him in a garden, and he didn't say, okay, I'll take care of it. You guys just hang out, invent Pinterest, and just look at stuff all day. Soon you're going to come up with Snapchat. It's going to be great. And then 10 seconds, picture's gone. You get to take another one. It's awesome. He says, no, I want to put you here because you're going to have responsibility over this. And responsibility from the very beginning is something that we can even be afraid of, something that we can say, I can't handle this. And as leaders, God's saying, hey, I created you for responsibility over something. Take responsibility over it. And there's tons of areas already that you can see. If you're a parent, you have responsibilities over your kids. If you're a kid, you have a, a responsibility to love and honor your parents. Second fear, and this is the fear of the past. And he picks an idea that, that's really pointed for us. Because for so many of us, we say we can't talk to people because of what's gone on in our past around us. Verse 5, he says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers. All the grapes are ruined. 
and your sweet wine is gone. A vast army of locusts has invaded my land, a terrible army, too numerous to count. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and its fangs are like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my grapevines and ruined my fig trees, stripping their bark and destroying it, leaving the branches white and bare. Man, our, our pasts will stay our pasts, but only for a time. And then they're coming into our presence. Part of how they come into our presence for those of us who have kids is that we see our kids making decisions that we wish that we wouldn't have made. And part of the way that the devil works and that fear works is that if we have fallen victim to alcohol, if we've fallen victim to sex before we get married, even if it's stuff like gossip and talking about people around our kids without those people here, we say, you know what, who am I to say anything to my kids? I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Now, you can be a hypocrite if it means that you're going to be a parent also. Because God wants to lead us out of freedom in that temporarily. If, if our struggle is alcohol, which is the obvious example here, God says clearly, clearly, I don't want you to be drunk with wine. Instead, I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit because being drunk with wine will ruin your life. It's uh, Ephesians 5.18. If you want to go back, underline it, check it out for yourself. He said, let something other than a bottle control your life. But if that's been the case for you, that does not mean that you're mute to your kids or anyone else in life behind you for the rest of your life because, oh, well, you screwed up. You can't say anything. No, no, no. God wants to lead you to freedom in that. For your past to be redeemed, to save somebody else from a past that they don't want. He's saying, let me pick you up. Let me put it back together. And that can happen in any way. We've got responsibility as humans over other things. And as those things are running up against decisions that we made poorly, it's worth being a hypocrite for. And you lean into that as much as you can. You say, you know what? I messed this up. I'm not standing here as somebody who says, you're worse than me because I never screwed this up. I'm standing here as somebody who says, I've done this and I don't want you to do it. So whether it's kids, whether it's people that you work with, that you're seeing them make decisions that you wish you wouldn't have. We take responsibility. We engage the past. We give God a chance to give us freedom from fear of the past. And we step into it and let him carry us through those times. Third thing is fear of the present. This is the third fear talked about in here. Verse 8, weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband, for there's no grain or wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning. The ministers of the Lord are weeping. The fields are ruined and the land is stripped bare. The grain is destroyed, the grapes have shriveled, and the olive oil is gone. Again, instead of uh, alcohol here, he talks about a wedding. He's saying this is supposed to be a time of celebration, but because of fear of the present, the bride isn't dressed in white, ready for a celebration. He's dressed, she's dressed in black, mourning. And he's saying if you let fear come into your present then everything can be ruined. Weddings are supposed to be times of celebration, but there's something in us because of the stress involved in the big event that it is. It has a tendency to make people crazy. Like Bridezilla, everybody's heard of that. Uh, Tim is our worship leader. Uh, he also does photography and videos for weddings. So I asked him, what's the craziest wedding story that you've got? And thankfully, you, half of you can be really excited. It's not about a bride. Uh, it's actually about a pastor. So I can tell this one without throwing shade on anyone. Uh, so he does videos and stuff, so he'll set one running for the whole ceremony at the back of the room, just so that he can go out and do everything else, and regardless of if he trips, falls, breaks his camera, whatever, uh, there's one video that's taking the whole ceremony for forever. In the meantime, he'll walk around and get other shots and everything. 
and so the pastor who's organizing everything, and when we get on stage, there's something weird that happens to our brains where we think that we're the most popular people in the whole world. So this guy uh, decided that if Tim wasn't listening and Tim wasn't filming, that Tim needed to be called out in front of everyone. So while being on camera, he tells Tim loudly across the room how he needs to be filming him, and this is important, blah, 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 and all this was caught on camera. Because it's a wedding, because everybody loses their sense of what's right and what's normal and what's expected of a human being, and they go a little bit crazy. So here in this instance, the bride is broken. It's supposed to be her wedding. It's supposed to be good. But her husband's dead, and what it talks about here is a fear of the present. That where there's supposed to be life and joy and happiness for us, there can be nothing if we give in to fear constantly are present in the good things that, that we have coming for us, that God has for us. They can be all wiped away by fear. The answer here isn't to just put on a face and make sure that everything is okay and give everybody the impression that you've got everything under control. That's not what he's saying here. What the Bible says about worry and the, the general direction of it forever is that instead of pretending, instead of making sure that we've got everything under control all the time, but we take our worries and we take our concerns to somebody who can actually do something about it, and that's Jesus. We're never going to come to the Lord in prayer about something, whether it's the first time, whether it's the 5,000th time, and God's going to say, you're coming to me again about this? Okay, let's go over this. Get over it. That's not what God's going to say. He's going to say, you bring me your concerns as big as you think they are, and you will find mercy, compassion, and peace to overwhelm your fear. There's also fear of the future. It says, despair all you farmers, wail all you vine growers, weep because the wheat, the barley, all the crops of the field are ruined. The grapevines have dried up and the fig leaves have withered. The pomegranate trees, palm trees, and apple trees, all the fruit trees is dried up. And the people's joy is dried up with them. There are so many things that need to happen for a good crop to grow. Like there needs to be rain, there needs to be a freeze. It's not that bad, but it's still sort of frozen. And like just thing upon thing upon thing that give farmers so much reason to worry. And what God is saying here is you don't need to worry about your future. Jesus says it plainly in Matthew 6. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Look at birds. They don't have a savings account of stuff anywhere. Every day they go out, they get what they need to, and then they go back. The flowers, they're not worried about water. They grow up, they look better than King Solomon and all of his wealth. Worry about today. Work on today. Don't worry about tomorrow. James, who was Jesus' brother and saw Jesus live this way at the, at, after Jesus has died and rose again and gone to heaven, James said, you can plan out everything in your life, but God is still going to order your steps. That's the word here. We don't have to worry about the future. After 13 years in student ministries, working with 13 classes of seniors, you can see every year around April, everybody starts to go crazy because they don't know what next year is going to be. They don't know if that, if that scholarship is going to land correctly as it's supposed to. They don't know about their roommate. They don't know about moving away from home. They don't know about staying home. They don't know about getting an apartment. They don't know about not getting an apartment. All these things. And they just turn into this ball of worried mess. And so every year in our planning, we mark out some Thursday or Wednesday in April where we're going to talk about worry. Every single year, because every single senior, year after year, is just bonkers about that. So we don't even like have to watch for it. We just know April, they're going to go crazy. And so you talk about worry, because it matters then. God's saying in this, fear of the future, I've got your future. Work on today. When you're afraid about today, take things to somebody who can do something about it. That's the Lord. 
And when we're worried about our past, worried about our present, our future, our responsibilities, all these things, we begin to fear God's presence. Here's where Joel goes after the priests, the people who stand and minister in God's presence. He says, dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priests. Wail, you who serve before the altar. Come spend the night in burlap, you ministers of my God. For there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of your God. Burlap is this horrible fabric. It's not nice like cotton or whatever that you're wearing. It's this totally abrasive thing that you wear right on your skin so you're miserable. And he's saying, your fear has made you miserable. So you might as well put on burlap because you've already walked into it. You're not supposed to be miserable. I didn't create you to be miserable. I didn't create you to worship fear. And this type of thinking, and I think we fall into this so much, is we're only thinking about what we don't have. When we're comparing sins and, and morality, we always compare down, all right? Well, I'm never as bad as that guy, okay? We're all quick to say that. We're all really slow to say, you know what? I'm really bad. I'm gonna be more like this person. Nobody says that. We're always like, I'm way better than him. When it comes to possessions, we always compare the opposite way. Instead of saying that person's way worse than me, we say, well, I don't have that. I want that. I want that house. I want that car. I want that boat. I want those kids. I want my son to have that home run swing. I want my daughters to behave like that. We always compare up. And when we worship fear, when we worship not having and what we don't have, we lose our focus on God. We make ourselves miserable. And the last thing, the, the way out of fear, the last thing that we hit in this passage that we say, to no, we say no to fear through repentance. This is the biblical term for making a U-turn. We've walked this way. We're living in fear about our past, our past, our present, our future, whatever. And then we make a U-turn and we say, I'm no longer living this way. I'm running to Jesus instead of running to fear. Verse 14, he says, Announce a time of fasting and call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord our God and cry out to him there. The day of the Lord is near, the day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that, that day will be. And then verse 19, they say, Lord, help us. This is the moment of the gospel. This is the moment where Jesus meets us in our fear and he says, do you want a way out? Do you want to find forgiveness? He knows how far we've walked away from God by worshiping fear instead of worshiping God. And he says, I'm offering you a way back to me. Jesus came as the Son of God to live and show love as God would love, and in doing so, to die to forgive us of our sins, to offer us an invitation into a relationship with him for all time. We do that throughout our lives here on earth, and when we die as forgiven, loved people who have chosen God, we go to be with God through all eternity, and that happens through repentance. For us as Christians, our whole life is that of repentance. It's of making one big U-turn, and in this today, we're hitting a U-turn around fear. Jesus says, I'm not just going to give you a band-aid that covers it temporarily. I'm going to give you a roadmap by the way to live where you no longer have to make this part of what you do. I want you to say no to fear and repent. That's what he's saying. And the people are saying that as they cry out to the Lord, help us. And so in the day of the Lord, God's kingdom comes and the chains of fear are broken. They cry out to God, God, help us. And instead of sending bugs, instead of sending locusts, God sends an army. But the thing is, is the army isn't a bad army. It's the army of the Lord. And we see that in this first that God is near. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Sounds the trumpet in Jerusalem, raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. 
It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness, and suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has ever seen before or will ever be seen. God is saying, I'm near to you. You cry out to me, and I am near to you. It is not a process of you finding relationship in me. It's a process of you restoring your life and taking back what's been broken, but you want God near to you, and that can happen today. That can happen in a second. God's forgiveness comes in an instant and immediately we're made new, we're changed. And in that, God's powerful. I love that the love of God, the thing about God that draws us near to him where God comes to live in our heart, he doesn't just turn into a God who feels bad for us and loves us, but he's also a God who can do something about it. He's a God that can look at every single area of brokenness in our lives and instead of saying, I'm sorry, he says, I can heal that. So he says in verse three, Fire burns in front of them and the flames follow after them. Ahead of them, the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. Behind them is a picture of nothing but des- desolation. Not one thing escapes. They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap along the mountaintops. Listen to the noise they make, like the rumbling of chariots, like the roar of the fire sweeping across the field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. He's saying, I'm moving into battle on your behalf. I'm a mighty army. I'm a God who's powerful. I'm not a God who just feels bad, but a God who wants to bring you freedom because of his power. He's also bringing us freedom because of his relentless love. Verse six, it says, fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. The attackers march like warriors and scale the city like soldiers. Straightforward, they march, never breaking rank. They never jostle each other. Each moves in exactly the right position. They break through defenses without missing a step. They swarm over the city and they run along its walls. They enter all the houses, climbing like thieves through the window. He's saying, there's nothing that's going to separate my love and my presence from your life. You ask for a relationship with me, I'm near. You're going to find that today. You bring your brokenness to me, I'm powerful. You're going to find healing for what hurts you. And he also says it's relentless, that even as you stumble, even as you fall with me in charge, we're going to walk away from fear together because God is undefeatable. Verse 10, the earth quakes as they advance. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars no longer shine. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is my mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? Who can survive is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who says, Jesus, I want you in my life. I realize that I've walked away from you through sin. I'm walking toward you through repentance, through forgiveness as I put you in charge of my life. That's how we find an escape from this. This is how we respond to the alarm clock in our lives. Is for the first time we say, okay, Jesus, I want you to run things. And then every day of our life, we look at the areas of fear. We look at the areas where we're taking control away from God. And we say, okay, God, you're in charge. I want you to break this fear in my life. I'm gonna partner with you, show me what to do. But I want you to work on my behalf. Work a miracle of freedom for me to lead me out of fear. This is how we respond to the alarm. And that's what God continues to say through the book of Joel. That it's a time to wake up. The day of the Lord is coming. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in God, it's going to be a day of waking up and walking to Jesus, leaving behind old lives of sin and walking together fresh toward the God that loves us. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, we thank you.
for being our Savior. We thank you that you didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead you emptied yourself, took on human form, lived like us, died the death that we deserve in our place to pay for our sins so we could have a relationship with the perfect, pure God that loves us. If you're here today and you've never made the decision to ask Jesus to come into your life, you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to make you into a new person from the inside of you to the outside of you, I want to give you that chance today. And believe me, because I'm in the same place, we are not saying that we're perfect as Christians. We're saying that we've found forgiveness in Jesus. And so I'm going to count to three, and if you've never done that before, then I'm going to invite you to do that today. So one, God loves you. God has never stopped loving you. God's never flinched in his love for you. Always has, always will. And today he's calling you to follow him. Two, all of us, me included, have walked away from God. We've put things in our lives that separate us from God. And Jesus came to remove those separations and bring us into relationship with God. And three, today's your day to say, yeah, I'm ready for a relationship with God. If you've never done that before, and today's your day to do that, I just want you to look at me and raise your hand. And at the end, someone's gonna pray with you. It's going to be the best decision you've ever made because you're going to find forgiveness and new life in Jesus today. Is there anyone like that here today? All right, I'm going to challenge us to respond in two ways. I have no clue what the biggest fear in your life is. I don't know if it's your past. I don't know if it's your future. I don't know, and that's okay because Jesus does. And Jesus is here to bring healing today. Jesus is here to bring a new future today. Jesus is here to wipe away uh, the fears that bind us and lead us into freedom. And so the front is going to be open. It's going to be a physical way to respond to what's going on in your heart. Walk up to the front. You can stand if you want. You can kneel if you want. But you're saying, okay, God, this is the fear. I'm giving it to you. I'm leaving it right here at the front. And I'm going to walk back to my seat as somebody who's forgiven and free by the God who loves me, a God who's stronger than me, a God who's bigger than me, and a God who's going to meet me here, take my fear, and I'm going back to my seat free. Let's do that. And if your fear is responsibility and you've put something on the serve card, I just want you to come up and stick it on the front of the stage. Someone's going to contact you this week with an opportunity for you to get involved in an area that God has already wired you for. It's a way for us to take responsibility. So let's respond to give God our fears and also take responsibility for stuff at church. Let's worship and respond.